0: Welcome to the Minor Consult, where I speak to the leaders shaping our world in diverse ways. Today, I'm joined by Carla Harris, a person of many talents, perhaps best known for blazing a trail as a Wall Street executive. I'm delighted to welcome her to the Minor Consult to discuss the obstacles she has overcome, her role as a mentor, and her pearls of leadership wisdom. Carla, welcome. It's great to have you here today.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, Lloyd.
0: So, Carly, you were born in Texas, and you spent much of your childhood in Jacksonville, Florida. From there, you went on to Harvard, where you earned your bachelor's degree and your MBA. Can you tell us about your upbringing and the challenges you faced in your journey to college and then business school?
1: Yeah, I'll tell you, Lloyd, I had a, I had a great childhood. My mother was uh, a elementary school, excuse me, a middle school administrator. She started off as a physical education teacher and then uh, got her master's and then became uh, an administrator of the school. My father was a captain of a commercial fishing vessel and they, number one, always made me feel like I was supposed to do well. Never made me feel like it was special. I was special because I made A's. They impressed upon me that I was supposed to make A's and I was supposed to do well. But I will tell you that I did not have anybody around me that had been engaged Aged in what I'm going to call formal business, meaning in corporate America, working in uh, you know working in a, in a high-rise, if you will, certainly working in financial services or in any other part of what we would think of as organized business. I had entrepreneurs around me for sure and educators, but it was after my sophomore year at Harvard uh, that I realized that there was this thing called finance and there was this thing called Wall Street. And the reason I was attracted was, frankly, a, lo- a number of my friends after the first year, after our freshman year, went off to this program that was started by SEO. And they came back talking about what a great time they had on Wall Street. And that's what piqued my interest. And I had started an appetite and decided I was going to go for it this summer after my sophomore year. But I will tell you that I grew up uh, in, in an environment where I went to Catholic schools from K through 12. And my high school was a very competitive high school, one of the best in Jacksonville. And while I had aspirations to go to college, I didn't have any particular site or target on Harvard. But my classmates in honors classes were asking each other, have you applied to Harvard yet? Have you applied to Princeton? You know, I got my application into University of Pennsylvania. Oh, I'm thinking about Cornell. And those were some of the things that made me look into the Ivy Leagues a, a little bit more vigorously. That's
0: wonderful. And following your time at Harvard, you did land on Wall Street. And what you Mm -hmm. talked a little bit about, but can you tell us more about what made you decide to focus your career in investment banking as opposed to or in contrast to other aspects of the financial services industry?
1: Sure. The summer of 1982, which was the summer after my sophomore year when I had the first Wall Street internship, I was placed in public finance at a firm that was then called Blythe Eastman Payne Weber, which, as you know, has has long been gone and folded into uh, the DLJs and some of the other uh, firms on the street. And that summer, I realized that I had an opportunity to use my economics degree, number one. Number two, I realized that a lot of the things that attracted me to the law were actually found in business. I wanted to call the shots. I wanted to have a lot of responsibility early on. And I wanted to, quote, make a lot of money. And all of a sudden, I realized that What I thought about law was actually found in business, that the lawyers didn't call the shots, the business people call the shots, and they help you get it done within the context of the law. That's what lawyers did. There I was with a lot of responsibility at 19 years old. I was working on analysis from which people were making decisions to issue hundreds of millions of dollars of bonds. And, oh, by the way, they, they earned quite a lot of money. And so that was the thing that turned my attention to investment banking. But I will also tell you, Lloyd, I'm negatively motivated. And when you tell me I can't do something, I'm all over it. And the fact that I did not see a lot of women and I did not see a lot of people of color really piqued my interest around investment banking because frankly, there was no logical explanation as to why that wasn't the case, at least not in my 19 year old mind. So I turned my sights towards going towards that.
0: That's wonderful. And Carla, you've been tremendously successful, rising to the level of vice chairman at Morgan Stanley over the course of your career. In fact, Bloomberg News has referred to you as one of the few black women to rise to the top echelons of Wall Street. You've also been named to Fortune Magazine's list of the 50 most powerful black executives in corporate America and many other national lists and recognitions of your prominent role as an executive leader. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the atmosphere was like for you as you built your career in an industry that, as you pointed out, Uh, has been, is dominated by by white men. And how did you manage the unique challenges that you faced?
1: Sure. The toughest thing to figure out, Lloyd, was that uh, it wasn't not, in fact, a meritocracy. Every company that came to Harvard Business School to recruit, whether it was financial services or not, in 1987, they all sold a meritocracy. All you have to do is be smart and work hard. You can go to the top in our organization. But it didn't take me long to realize that that was an incomplete success equation. So the hard part was not having a playbook, not understanding that you cannot do it alone. You can't just be smart and and keep your head down and work really hard and therefore you will shine or people will give you your due. You need other relationships. Understanding that there is a room where all of the major decisions about your career, your compensation, your promotions, your new opportunities are all decided in a room behind closed doors where you are not present. That was a big aha. So not understanding the landscape, the context, the rules of the game were the tough pieces and then having to figure those out because it wasn't as if people were sharing information. Let me tell you how you need to do this. So let me tell you how you need to approach that person or let me give you the script of what you need to say when you're speaking to your boss. So learning all those things the hard way Lloyd you know falling in a hole having to crawl out then ponder what should I have done and then being ready to then apply that lesson the next time that that situation came around because it will come around if you don't learn it the first time. So those were the tough things and then feeling I didn't have sort of feelings of isolation I wasn't worried about sort of you know, being the only, because frankly, if you're a boomer and you're a person of color and you're a woman, then you understood that if you wanted to play at all, you were going to have to be the first and the only in many, many rooms. So that was just a given. But really trying to figure this all out on your own, that was the hard piece. How did
0: how did that make you feel, Carla? I mean, I, I, I think many of us would have been would have been angry that there, was, there were these unwritten rules that, uh, mm-hmm. as you said, no one was communicating and, and y- you were like maybe in a fishbowl where everyone was looking in at you, but you couldn't really see out at them or what they were thinking. How, how did you wow. react to that? And was it motivating? Was it uh, off-putting or some combination of all of the above?
1: I will tell you that it was absolutely motivating because this is where the negative motivation kicked in, Lloyd. Sure. You know, the fact that it was hard or if you knew somebody was trying to make it more difficult for you. In many cases, those were the times, those were the situations that made me push even harder or made me even more determined. So I would say that in many ways it was a blessing being negatively motivated because it became, you know, part of the, the stimulant, if you will, to keep pushing through as opposed to the barrier to make you say, uncle, I'm done. It, you know, Life is too short. And, and Carla, in August of
0: 2013, President Barack Obama tapped you to chair the National Women's Business Council, uh, which counsels top federal officials on economic issues of importance to women entrepreneurs and others. Can you tell mm-hmm. us, how did you approach your leadership Uh, in this post what did you learn from it and what are you most proud of as your time as chair
1: Well, I'll tell you, this is where Carla the banker helped Carla the public servant, because as a customer gal, Lloyd, the first thing that I did was go to the constituents, and the constituents of the National Women's Business Council is the White House, it is the Congress, uh, and the small business committees within the House uh, and the Senate, Uh, and it's also the SBA. So the very first thing that I did was to go and visit each of the constituents and say, If the National Women's Business Council was going to do anything over the next year or two, what do you think the priorities should be? Because one thing that I've learned as a customer gal, you should never go off and pursue that which you believe to be successful. Always ask the customer because you can work really hard, but you may be offering something that is not valued. And there you have given your all, but it's not something that they care about. So find out what they care about. The second reason it's an important thing to do is because they may not have an opinion. And in the absence of an opinion, you get to define the agenda. And so in many of those conversations, frankly, what I got back was, hmm, that's a good question. Um, hmm. Well, this is what I know of the council 10 years from now. So that gave me the opportunity to say, well, maybe it would be good for us to focus on expanding the definition of women owned to women led. Maybe it would be important for us to work on soul sourcing right. and open that channel a little bit more so there's more more money going from the largest uh, you know customer mean the government in the country that could funnel more money to women entrepreneurs for this program and that program. So those are some of the things that that we focused on. But one of the things that I'm most proud of is that we did expand the conversation from women-owned to women-led, because I felt strongly that if a woman was going to raise money to expand and scale her business, by definition, she might not own 51%. So we should not confine the conversation to women-owned, but rather expand it to women-led. And I think we were pretty Successful in being able to do that.
0: That's wonderful. Now I want to ask you about Carlos Pearls. You've yes, literally sir. written the book on strategies for effective leadership, in fact, three books. Um, in Lead to Win, you write an update on the leadership advice uh, that you've given and learned from in the playbooks dating back to the 1990s. In your perspective, which stretches over a period of time in business and the corporate environment and in leadership. How has the corporate environment changed during that period of time? And how have the expectations for successful managers changed?
1: Yes. Oh, thank you for this question, Lloyd. I grew up and built my career in the late 80s, early 90s, early 2000s, when I would argue that the leadership context was a my way or the highway type leadership context. And as I like to joke, you know the way the old joke used to go. Your boss says jump, your answer better be how high. But now we're in an environment where millennials and Zers are the dominant population in the workforce. And if you say jump, they're going to say why. And interestingly enough, we have people who are in the leadership seat who are not used to being challenged like that. If they give you an assignment, they want you to execute and not ask, where does this fit? Why are we doing this? Do I really need to do it this way? That's number one. Number two, people tend to lead the way they were led. So now you have people who were are in the leadership seat who were led in that my way of the highway type context trying to lead people who question and who want to be motivated and inspired before they will deliver their excellence. So the question is, do these leaders know how to do that? And and I would argue many do not because they're leading the way they were led. So the whole context has changed in general. And, and Lloyd, I noticed this in the fourth quarter of 18, that's when I had my aha moment that millennials and zeroes were quickly becoming the dominant population in the workforce. Now you layer on a global pandemic, you layer on social unrest on the back of racial inequities in this country and frankly, around the world. And you have a situation where there's been two powerful shifts The first shift is the amplification of voice and choice. Employees are now telling you the kind of environment they want to work in. They're telling you now when they want to work, how they want to work. They're asking the question, what are the corporate values and do they really align with mine? They're asking employers to speak about society issues issues and their challenges. Okay. And oh, by the way, employers are trying to solicit their employees' voices because they recognize the power of engagement. So that's one big shift that has happened. The other is the change in the contract between employer and employee. It used to be as employer, I could tell you what to do, how to do it, where to do it, when to do it, and how to show up to do it. Well, two and a half years in in the pandemic environment, and many industries and many companies had record years. So you can't really argue about where to do it. And, oh, by the way, I can't really tell you when to do it. You can produce it at two two o'clock in the morning, but as long as you get it there, I can't tell you really how to do it because I'm not looking over your shoulder because leadership is no longer about oversight, but rather insight oh, by the way, I can't tell you how to show up to do it. Can anybody say sweatpants, right? So, you know, it's a whole different context now that people have to think about how they're going to motivate and inspire because that's what these group, this group of employees are they're looking for in order to deliver.
0: And, and Carla, how, how would you grade the business community on how well that transition is going and how well the senior leaders of the business community, the financial services community today are doing with that transition that you just so eloquently described.
1: Yeah, I think people are struggling because I think there's a contingent that really wants to run back to the way things were. There's a contingent that's convinced themselves that this is the only way that people can really learn how to be great financial services professionals. Um, And then I think there's a group of people that recognize that there ought to be something different given what we have gone through, but they're not quite sure what that ought to look like.
0: Thank you. In Lead to Win, you also encourage leaders to reflect on how they want to be perceived and to identify their own blind spots through reflection and mentoring uh, and feedback. Can you dig into the importance of this and what have you found to be the best process for, for doing these things? And when you're mentoring executives that are making this transition, what do you stress and emphasize in working with them?
1: Absolutely. First of all, self-reflection is an important thing to do and being self-aware of who you are as a leader, because who you were as an individual contributor is probably very different than who you are now as a leader. And to actually ask yourself the questions, where did you get your leadership style? What are you now afraid of? Where are your blind spots? But also the second piece of that, frankly, Lloyd, is to get some feedback from those that you're leading. You know, say to people, I want to be one of the best leaders that's walking into this organization, and I want to be one of the best leaders that you've ever had. Talk to me about what that looks like. I want to understand because part of my job is to develop you. Part of my job is to make sure that you can go anywhere within this organization and flourish and put points on the board. I would love for you to work for me forever, but if you do not, I want people to say, wow, Carla did a great job training that person, or wow, anybody that she develops can go anywhere and produce for us. We're not far, Lloyd, in my mind, from the point where we are going to be rewarding people who can develop and retain great talent the same way that we reward people who are great producers. Especially in financial services, we have definitely been producer-focused in terms of compensation and rewards. But now that we are in a a war for talent, I think great leaders are starting to think about, but wait a minute, if, if Lloyd touches these five people, A, they stay with us, B, they go on to do great things, and C, they develop other great leaders. Lloyd, therefore, should be rewarded the same way as our best trader. I don't think we're far from that, especially as shareholders start to focus on the S of ESG, which is around diversity, which is around environment, which is around equity, and which is going to be around retention. Because let's face it, you know, people build buildings, not just machines and technology, people build buildings. Financial services is an industry in particular where we have long said, certainly as long as I've been in the business, that our assets go up and down on the elevator every day. And you can put a measure of technology in any industry, but at the end of the day, you're going to need people, especially if there's a service component to your business where there's a B to C somebody's got to talk to that C
0: That's so informative and, and and well stated Now maybe moving on you you in addition to 101 mem- one-to-one mem- mentorship and organizational change which you've emphasized and written about in your books you're also committed to cultivating future leaders that are entrepreneurs and in educating people in entrepreneurship particularly women, and people of color, groups that are oftentimes overlooked by investors or by other entrepreneurial training programs. Can you share about the role you've played within the Morgan Stanley Multicultural Innovation Lab and how you develop programs there to nurture the career development and success of entrepreneurs?
1: Absolutely. It was my brainchild to have an in-house accelerator uh, because I saw down the line that this could be a great pipeline uh, for our IPO business over time, because don't forget, Lloyd, I'm, I'm a capital markets banker at heart. And um, the way that we've done this is that we said, hmm, we know what it takes for a successful private market exit because we're number one, two, or three, pick the year in M&A. We know what it takes for a successful public market exit because we're number one or two in IPOs, pick the year. So if we know what that looks like, we can actually vertically integrate backwards to figure out what we need to provide to these entrepreneurs to help them to develop To be great ceos and to scale their businesses and oh by the way we're a global investment bank that can connect to almost any relationship that could be a supplier or a customer not to mention sources of capital and one of the the people that we had involved with us very early on in the lab a gentleman by the name of william crowder who has his own fund now You know, he had been in and around the early stage community for a long time. And he said, if you're going to start a new accelerator, make it founder focused, because a lot of the accelerators that are out there that are competitive, they're very focused on... Into introducing these entrepreneurs to sources of capital, but nobody's investing in their development and evolution from being a founder to a CEO. And that was one of the things that informed the six-month curriculum that we put together to help these founders go from being a founder to a CEO and to give them the tools that they needed to scale their business. And the lab is now five years old. We're the only firm on the street that has over 60 companies that we have invested in that have been founded by women and or people of color that and, and that we have invested in from our balance sheet. So it's something that I'm extremely proud of. And, and here's one more point, Lloyd. You know that in VC land, there's one out of 10 that quote makes it. Well, we have a track record where there's one or two that do not make it, which is a completely different uh, statistic.
0: That's fantastic. And Carla, throughout your career, you've been at the forefront of workplace diversity, equity and inclusion strategies. From your perspective, what are the biggest barriers preventing organizations from fully embracing and implementing effective DEI initiatives and strategies and how have the most successful organizations overcome these challenges
1: Absolutely you need 3 things in order to have a long-term competitive sustainable DEI program it is intentionality accountability and consistency and let me start with consistency one of the reasons that i would argue we're not farther along in financial services and we have made progress make no mistake but one of the reasons I would argue that we're not farther along is for many, many years, it was a bull market phenomenon. What do I mean by that? When we were in a bull market, lots of firms put big investments to work around DE&I. It brought in a lot of people, created lots of external relationships. But the minute we got in a bear market environment, the, it didn't go away, but the intensity went from 10 to about 2 and what happens in a bear market environment? You have restructurings, you have reductions in forces, and your smaller populations are disproportionately hurt. So when you go back into a bull market phenomenon, you look and you have no pipeline. You're starting all over again. So it's been that kind of boom or bust cycle you know, over the last 30 years that we've been in this conversation. Better? Yes. Progress? Yes. But we could have been further along if we had not had that phenomenon. The second barrier has been the fact that people have long looked at DE&I as a nice to do or as the moral thing to do and not embraced it as a commercial strategic imperative. And let's think about it, Lloyd, anything that is of strategic importance to a corporation takes them one year. One year, it's on our strategy. It's on our plan this year. We execute and we measure against that. We are 32 years into the DEI conversation. How are we still talking about it? Which means we were looking at it through the wrong lens, you know, in my view and then the intentionality is if you're looking for more women and people of color then you got to be intentional when you have those openings to say we're looking for two very senior people on the executive leadership team and we're going to keep looking until we find a woman or until we find a person of color not changing the scale not lowering the bar putting more effort around finding it because by definition that person is the most qualified if that is what you're looking for Right. And so that's the intentionality. The accountability is if I say to Lloyd, I need to make sure that your team is more diverse, that you are actually promoting and elevating women and people of color. If I tell you that is of strategic importance, the next year when your evaluation comes up and we're having this conversation, now I should say, Lloyd, where are you? You did well on the revenues. You did well on the profit. But where where are you on this? Oh, I would have paid you X, but now it's X minus Y. That's accountability. So we've talked about intentionality, accountability, and consistency, and that's what you need. And the the firms that are farther along in doing that, they have deployed those strategies.
0: Switching gears for a moment, as a fellow music lover, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about your singing. On top of your incredible career in finance, you're also an accomplished vocalist singing at concerts at Carnegie Hall, the Apollo Theater, and many, many other venues and recording albums. What role does music play in your life and how do you make time for music uh, in the face of your incredibly busy schedule?
1: Yeah, I'll say that music is a very big part of my life. I also sing in a choir up in Harlem at St. Charles Borromeo Church. And before the pandemic, we would sing the first, second, and fourth Sundays of the month. So that was one of the ways, frankly, Lloyd, that I kept the pipes uh, in in good shape. And I now use the singing as a way of raising capital for, you know, two schools that are—one school that's in Jacksonville, Florida, and one school that's up in Harlem. So I try to use Carla the Singer to be able to raise capital— for, you know, different organizations in the community and to attract other capital. Because sometimes the people that are coming to my concerts have never been exposed to some of the organizations that might be the beneficiaries of the concerts, but now they get exposed and they can continue to contribute long after that the concert. So I try to use it as a multiplier effect. Uh, and I will tell you, there are oftentimes in my investment banking context where Carla the singer is in the room before the banker is in the room because Carla the singer can read an audience better than Carla the banker. So they coexist and leverage each other.
0: Carla, this has been such a wonderful conversation. But Before we close, I wanna ask two questions that I like to ask all successful leaders. First, what do you think are the most important characteristics for a leader today. You've talked about some of them, but maybe a a synopsis of of what you think are the most important characteristics.
1: Absolutely, they're the eight pearls that are in chapter six of lead to win. Authenticity, the ability to build trust, the ability to create clarity, i.e. define success, the intentionality around creating other leaders, having an intentional focus on diversity, inclusivity and innovation. And then lastly, Lloyd, is being willing to call a thing a thing. Voice, no matter how bad the thing might be. Wonderful. And finally,
0: what gives you hope for the future?
1: Well, what gives me hope for the future? Frankly, the millennials and the Zers. I do believe that they're going to turbo boost what we as boomers and older Xers have been trying to do for 20 years. I think they're going to get it done in single digit years. And when I say it done, I mean having a measure of valuing diversity and innovation and inclusivity and leveraging that for strategic gains.
0: Carla, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you for listening to The Minor Consult with me, Stanford School of Medicine, Dean Lloyd Minor. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion with longtime Morgan Stanley executive, Carla Harris. Please send your questions by email to the Consult at theminerconsult.com and check out our website, theminerconsult.com for updates, episodes, and more. To get the latest episodes of The Minor Consult, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate the podcast five stars. Your feedback helps make this podcast happen. Thank you so much for joining me today. I look forward to our next episode. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and be kind.